Welcome to Saturday Evening Torah Class, an in-depth, interdisciplinary study of the Hebrew Scriptures. Tonight's lesson is week number 37, Genesis, chapters 42 and 43. At the end of our last lesson, the seven years of abundant crops and livestock had passed down in Egypt. And this great seven-year famine of Pharaoh's dream or vision or probably better nightmare had begun. And Joseph was now in charge of Egypt and this food program. And he was second in command of that nation with only Pharaoh above him. Joseph was one of the most powerful men on the face of the earth at this time in history. Now the famine of Genesis 41 was caused by low rainfall, a drought. Okay? This drought that apparently affected northern Africa, where Egypt lay, also affected much of the Middle East. And I want to talk a little bit about the geography because it helps to understand the overall situation of this section of the Torah, chapters 41, 42, 43, and so on, and explains why many of the things that we read happened the way they did. First of all, let's begin by understanding that the regional designations of Egypt are virtually backwards of what we would normally think. Egypt was spoken of as upperly, Upper Egypt and Lower Egypt. And no, the graph's not wrong. All right. Upper Egypt is south, and Lower Egypt is north. Further, this is because the Nile River flows from south to north. Okay. It flows from Upper Egypt to Lower Egypt. Now, obviously, water flows downhill. All right, and as it turned out, the southern end of Egypt had a hot, slightly higher elevation than the northern end. All right, so we get the upper and lower seemingly reversed to us. Now, the southern end of the Nile, up, upper Egypt, all right, down here, is where the Nile begins. And there are two enormous geographical basins where the where the rainfall occurs and where the water from all this rainfall naturally funnels towards the Nile to fill it up from one basin flows what's called the white Nile and from the other basin the blue Nile right and around the city of Khartoum Right. The, the White Nile meets with the Blue Nile to form the Great Nile, or the Nile that we're all familiar with. Now, the Great Nile then flows up, in our way of thinking, north towards the Mediterranean Sea. And it, as it approaches the land of Goshen, right, in Lower Egypt, right, it encounters what's called the Delta region. 
way up here. Right? And it dissipates into a, a number of natural fingers that all eventually find their way to the Mediterranean Sea. Now, even though the Delta region is a, up here, uh, where, where the river comes to an end and flows into the sea, is a naturally rainless area. Right? Due to the abundant waters carried by the Nile from down south, um, and the marshlands that are created from all this, uh, from all these fingers that flow out, right, spreading out over the land of Goshen, much like the water flows across the Everglades, because it's so flat, right? The area is fertile, and it is great for growing crops and for grazing animals. Now the bottom line here is that the only thing that makes Egypt inhabitable is the Nile. All right? And the only thing that creates the Nile is the rainfall from these two great basins to the south right? in what's called Upper Egypt. Now, even though the Egyptians very early on began digging canals to channel water from the Nile to croplands. It was the annual rising and falling of the water levels of the Nile that determined feast or famine. Okay? It was crucial that the Nile overflow its banks during the three summer months. An overflow that was caused by monsoon-type rains that occurred far to the south and those two southern river basins that formed the headwaters of the Nile. And, and the overflow not only watered the land, it brought rich silt, rich in nutrients all right, uh, that were necessary to grow crops all along the Nile. But it only took a few inches of rainfall deficit in but one of the two great southern basins to destroy that delicate balance and prevent sufficient water flow to cause the necessary downriver flooding. So it's not that the Nile all but dried up in Joseph's time, nor that the people didn't have sufficient water to drink. They did. It's simply that for a several year period, the Nile did not overflow and the marshlands of the delta receded and therefore, there were, therefore sufficient crops were not produced to feed all the citizens of Egypt. Now to be clear, all food production didn't cease, but it was dramatically reduced. Right? And there wasn't enough to sustain the people. Now just so we understand the supernatural nature of this widespread famine, the weather systems that govern rainfall in southern Egypt and those that govern rainfall in the Middle East, say the land of Canaan, are totally separate. Okay? That very low rainfall occurred for several years in southern Egypt during the same time there was a drought for several years in Canaan was a God thing. That doesn't normally occur. Now one of the reasons that Egypt 
And the people of Canaan knew each other so well and had, since time immemorial, established trade among themselves was because usually where there was crop failure in Egypt due to low levels of the Nile, Egypt could count on going north to Canaan in that area to buy extra food and vice versa. Right? But this time it was different. This time it affected both areas simultaneously. Had God not given Pharaoh that prophetic dream and then given him Joseph to interpret it, there would have been widespread death in both Egypt and Canaan because of low food supplies in both lands. But God warned Egypt and Egypt prepared because it was able to prepare. God first gave them supernatural abundance that they would have hefty surpluses for seven straight years. Okay? Joseph planned and used this so that they could build up enormous stores of grain for the coming seven bad years. Well, later, upon the onset of the drought, Egypt, partly, I suppose, from a sense of compassion, but primarily from a sense of self-interest, made food available from its warehouses to people of other nations. This was not welfare. Okay? The price for these stored grains was very high. Okay? We see from this upcoming story of Genesis 42 and 43 that several bags of silver was required to buy food. All right, for the clan of Jacob. Food would not normally have required a sum of money that would have been spoken of in terms of bagfuls of silver. Okay. Rather, Egypt was going to make a huge profit in its adept handling of this extended and a very extensive food crisis. All right. But also make no mistake, these high prices weren't just for foreigners. Egyptian citizens were also required to purchase their food from Pharaoh, or better, from Joseph. All right. A supplement, generally speaking, at first, usually not their sole source of food, but those who were poor and didn't have access to other more commercially available food sources, this famine wound up costing hundreds of thousands of Egyptians, possibly a million or more, their liberty. Okay? Because as these lower class Egyptians ran out of money to buy food, they had no choice but to sell themselves and their families into bond servitude to Pharaoh in exchange for grain. Okay? But from their standpoint, it was the Semite foreigner, Joseph, who was to blame for this travesty and this humiliation. Because Joseph was the front man. He was the visible symbol for the entire food, brand, uh, food, uh, food program getting both credit and blame. Okay? This was not something Egypt was soon going to forget. Okay? After Joseph's death and a long period of social upheaval in Egypt, the Egyptians were going to blame Joseph's kin, the tribes of Israel for their condition. This was going to eventually lead to the Egyptians turning the tables on Israel. Okay. The peasant Egyptians would enslave the more well-to-do and free 
Israelites beginning a cycle of persecution of the Hebrew people in foreign lands that we read of throughout the Bible. We've witnessed ourselves in the last century and we're going to continue to witness it until Messiah comes. Let's read Genesis 42 together. Genesis 42. Now Yaakov, Jacob, saw that there was grain in Egypt, so Jacob said to his sons, Why are you staring at each other? Look, he said, I've heard there's grain in Egypt. Go down there and buy some for us so that we can stay alive and not die. Thus, Joseph's ten brothers went down to buy grain from Egypt except for Benjamin. Joseph's brother, Yaakov, did not send him with his brothers because he was afraid something might happen to him. The sons of Israel came to buy along with the others that came since the famine extended to the land of Canaan. Joseph was governor over the land. It was he who sold to all the people of the land. Now when Joseph's brothers came and prostrated themselves before him on the ground, Joseph saw his brothers and recognized them. But he acted towards them as if he were a stranger and spoke harshly with them. And he asked them, where are you from? And they answered, from the land of Canaan to buy food. So Joseph recognized his brothers, but they didn't recognize him. Now remembering the dreams he had had about them, Joseph said to them, you're spies. You've come to spot our country's weaknesses. Oh, no, my Lord, they replied. Your servants have come to buy food. We're all the sons of one man. Why, we're upright men. And your servants aren't spies. No, he said to them, you've come to spy out our country's weaknesses. And they said, we're your servants. We are twelve brothers, the sons of one man in the land of Canaan. The youngest stayed with our father and the other one's gone. Just as I said, replied Joseph, you're spies. Now here's how you can prove you're not lying. As Pharaoh lives, you'll not leave here until your youngest brother comes here. Send one of you. Let him bring your brother. Meanwhile, you will be kept in custody. This will prove whether there's any truth in what you say. Otherwise, as Pharaoh lives, you are certainly spies. Then he put all them together in prison for three days. And on the third day, Joseph said to them, do what I say and stay alive, for I fear God. If you are upright men, let one of your brothers remain incarcerated in the prison you're being kept in while you go and carry grain back to relieve the famine in your homes. But bring your youngest brother to me. In this way, your statements will be, will be verified and you won't die. So they did it. They said to each other, we are, in fact, guilty concerning our brother. He was in distress and pleaded with us. We saw it and we wouldn't listen. That's why this distress has come upon us now. And Reuben answered them, Didn't I tell you? Don't wrong the boy. But you wouldn't hear of it. Now comes the reckoning for his blood. They had no idea that Joseph understood them since an interpreter was translating for them. Joseph turned away from them and he wept. And then he returned and he spoke to them and he took Shimon, Simeon, from among them 
and put him in prison before their eyes. Next he ordered that their containers be filled with grain, that every man's money be put in his pack, and that they be given provisions for the journey. When these things had been done for them, they loaded their grain on their donkeys and departed. But at camp that night, as one of them opened his pack to give fodder to his donkey, he noticed his money. There it was, just inside his pack. And he said to his brothers, my money's been restored. There it is, right in my pack. And at that, their hearts sank, and they turned, trembling to one another, and said, what is this that God has done to us? They returned to Yaakov, their father, in the land of Canaan, and told him all that had happened to them. The man, the lord of the land, spoke harshly with us. He took us for spies in his country. We said to him, we're upright men. We're not spies. We're twelve brothers, sons of our father. One's gone, and the youngest stayed with our father in the land of Canaan. But the man, the lord of the land, said to us, here's how I know that you are upright men. Leave one of your brothers with me. Take grain to relieve the famine in your homes and go on, to your, go on your way. But bring your youngest brother to me. By this I'll know that you aren't spies, but upright men then I will return your brother to you, and you will do business in the land. Next, as they emptied their packs, there was each man's bag of money in his pack, and when they and their father saw their bags of money, they became afraid. Jacob, their father, said to them, You've robbed me of my children. Joseph is gone. Simeon is gone, and now you want to take Benjamin away. It all falls on me. Reuben said to his father, if I don't bring him back to you, you can kill my own two sons. Put him in my care. I'll return him to you. But he replied, my son will not go down with you. His brother's dead and he alone is left. Anything were to happen to him while traveling with you, you'd bring my gray hair down to Sheol with grief. Well, interesting developments. You know, if we can but grasp that Israel was the tool that God was going to use to bring about his divine purposes from this point in history until time comes to an end sometime in the future, then perhaps we can begin to comprehend the significance of what is about to happen and all that we're reading here in this portion of Genesis. Okay, we've now moved from Egypt and Joseph in Genesis 42 back up to Canaan and Jacob. Okay, The great famine having now affected an enormous area, Jacob's clan is in a bad way. Okay, And, and the first verse of this chapter we, say, we see Jacob, Israel, in a pretty sarcastic mood. As he says to his sons, why are you staring at each other? In other words, you know we're in dire straits. You know there's grain available in Egypt. So why are you all sitting around waiting for somebody else to do something? Let's remember, he wasn't speaking to children. He was speaking to middle-aged men. All right, Most with their own families. All right, With children by now. Now, while I wish I could find some good and lovely things to say about Jacob's sons, the tribes of Israel, the Bible doesn't offer much about their character that's admirable, at least at this point. God didn't choose Israel because they were a band of great men. 
He chose them because he's a great God and he uses ordinary people to carry out his will. And by the way, we're not told to stand with Israel because they're a specially good or extraordinary or sympathetic race, which they're not. Okay. We're to stand with them because that's what God has instructed all the people of this planet to do. Okay. With dire consequences for those who don't heed him. So, brace yourselves, America. Our president has now put his desire for a legacy of peace in the Middle East, regardless of the cost, ahead of his God-commanded concern for Israel. We're going to pay an awful price for this. Trust me. So, Jacob, unable to wait any longer for these sons to do on their own volition what was necessary, orders all of them, except for Benjamin, to go to Egypt to buy grain. Was Benjamin not old enough to go? Certainly he was old enough to go. But Benjamin had taken the place of Joseph in Jacob's heart. All right. Because Benjamin and Joseph were his two sons through the wife Jacob loved the most, Rachel, now deceased. He simply wasn't going to risk Benjamin after having lost Joseph. Okay. And as the sons of Israel arrive in Egypt, they join in with the many more tribes and people from other nations, all in need of being saved from starvation. And who is it they have to go to for their salvation? Joseph. Now, verse 6 makes it clear that it was common knowledge that it was this great vizier of Egypt who was now going not by the name Joseph, but by the Egyptian name the Pharaoh had given him, Zaphonoth Paneah, that everyone must go in to, to, to buy grain. Joseph must have had an immense organization all right, to deal with the millions who were going to need food. And it certainly would have been rare for Joseph himself to deal directly with those who sought to buy grain. There would have just been too many. But of course, Joseph's brothers didn't recognize him. And it's not just that 20 years had passed since they'd last seen their little brother and his boyish features had become manly. It was that he now looked Egyptian. Okay? He was clean-shaven. Hebrews, by tradition, always wore beards. He wore his hair in Egyptian fashion. And he would have used certain cosmetics that Egyptian royalty typically applied to their faces. He also spoke Egyptian. Okay? And the mannerisms of that former tent-dwelling boy with all of his teenage gawkiness had been transformed and exchanged for the refined and confident regal bearing that was now Joseph. Ah, but he recognized them right away. And we can only imagine what must have flashed through Joseph's mind upon seeing his brothers. Deep pain from being so long ago torn from his family at the hands of these same men. But in a nanosecond, it tells us in verse 9 that he remembered those dreams of his youth. Okay, of the eleven sheaves of grain all bowing down to his 
and of the eleven stars and the moon and the sun paying homage to him. And it must also have been at that moment with all the preparation so carefully guided by this invisible God right, that those dreams that his brothers and his own father Jacob had chastised him for were true. It was all true. Joseph realized for the first time that divine providence had been working all along in his life. He now knew with certainty why God had allowed to happen all that had happened to him. Yet some testing was going to be needed to see if his brothers had also been prepared by El Shaddai. So Joseph, certainly knowing otherwise, accuses his brothers of being spies. And the brothers are utterly taken aback by this because the accusation doesn't even make sense. It borders the irrational, actually. Spies. Right? But you know what? They're afraid. Right? Because they are totally at this ruler's arbitrary mercy. Truth and justice doesn't matter at all at this point, and they know it. Okay, because a ruler of Joseph's stature can decide matters summarily. And he can order whatever punishment he deems appropriate. They are helpless and powerless to control their fate. Just as Joseph found himself helpless so long ago, lying at the bottom of that dry well, begging and crying for mercy that would not come from these same pitiless brothers now standing before him, hat in hand. Well, he questions them and he finds out his father Jacob is still alive, as is his little brother Benjamin. And so he orders that one brother go back and bring the youngest brother, Benjamin, back with him to approve their assertion that they weren't spies, that they were truthful. But this would not happen until all ten of them were thrown into prison for three days. Now, of course, the reason behind... Joseph's decision to jail them could have been nothing else but to separate his brothers from the myriads of Egyptian citizens and foreigners who daily came hoping to buy from Egypt's vast grain reserves. He wanted and he needed to deal with his family separately and not under the gaze of everybody else. And at the end of three days, he now gave a different order. Nine brothers were to return with the grain they needed to feed their clan. One, Simeon, was to remain in custody as surety for the rest. If they didn't bring back Benjamin, Simeon would forfeit his life. Or so that was the implication. So the brothers discussed their plight among themselves in front of Joseph, assuming he was an Egyptian and he wouldn't be understanding what they were speaking in Hebrew. Right? And Joseph kept up this ruse by using an interpreter, a translator, as a go-between during his dealings with his brothers. And what he heard make, made him weep. Okay? The guilt of over two decades overcame them. And they knew that this was their day of reckoning for what they had wrongly done to their little brother, Joseph. But he also heard Reuben try to absolve himself from all this with apparently no disagreement as to his position of innocence. And, and Joseph must have believed him. For rather than keeping the all-important firstborn 
the most valuable of them all, Reuben, as a prisoner, Joseph ordered Simeon, the second son of Jacob, to be held hostage. Now Joseph really messes with their heads. He orders that the money, those bags of silver that the brothers paid for the grain, be hidden in the necks of their grain sacks. And the very first night on their way back home, one of them went to get some grain for his donkey, and there was the money. Oh my gosh, what was going on here? They quickly decided that God was giving them their just desserts. Okay. One wonders what must have gone through their minds on that many-day journey back to face their father. Okay. Who was going to be the spokesman? among them to tell their fragile father that not only had they come back one short in their number, but now they were to take Benjamin, Jacob's most beloved child, back to Egypt with them or Simeon dies, along with the rest of them once Pharaoh's men catches up with them. Well, Jacob's reply is obvious. You've taken two of my children away from me and now you want to take a third? And Reuben then gives Jacob the guarantee that he will bring Benjamin back. But if he fails, Jacob can kill Reuben's two sons as punishment. Now, we're not really given Jacob's reply to this offer. But one can only imagine the unbelieving look on Jacob's face. I mean, I think his stunned reply would have been something like this. Brilliant, Reuben. All right, only you would figure after I've lost three sons, now I should kill my own grandchildren as retribution for that. I mean, are you insane? But you know, more and more, we see the wisdom in Reuben being denied, eventually, his firstborn right. Reuben is a politician. He's a windbag. That's it. I mean, he's always making these grandiose, unwise statements and promises that are utterly worthless and designed to do little but elicit an emotional response. Okay? In fact, we're not going to hear from Reuben anymore. He is set aside now. And from here on, we're going to hear Judah's voice more than any of the other brothers from here forward. So for the time being, however, Jacob is simply paralyzed in indecision. He cannot fathom what to do about this situation. All he knows is that should Benjamin be taken from him, he's not going to survive it. Okay? He doesn't really trust any of these sons anymore. All right? So he's not about to entrust Benjamin to them. Yet how are they going to survive without more grain? Well, let's find out. Let's go to Genesis 43. But the famine was severe in the land. So when they'd eaten up the grain which they had brought out of Egypt, their father said to them, Go again and buy us a little food. And Judah said to, them, said to him, Now the man expressly warned us, You will not see my face unless your brother is with you. If you will send our brother with us, then we will go down and buy you food. But if you will not send him, we won't go down because the man said to us, you will not see my face unless your brother's with you. So Israel says, 
Why did you bring such trouble my way by telling the man you had another brother? And they answered, The man kept questioning us about ourselves and about our kinsmen, and he asked, Is your father still alive? And do you have another brother? And we answered according to the literal meaning of his questions. How are we to know he'd say, Bring your brother down? And Judah said to Israel, his father, Send the boy with me. And we will make preparations and leave so that we may stay alive and not die, both we and you and also our little ones. I myself will guarantee his safety. You can hold me responsible. If I fail to bring him to you and present him back to your face, let me bear the blame forever. Except for our lengthy delay, we could have been back down there by now. And their father Israel answered them, If that's how it is, do it. Take in your containers some of the land's best products and bring the man a gift. Some healing resin, little honey, aromatic gum, opium, mustachio nuts and almonds. Take twice the amount of money with you and return the money that came back with you in your packs. It could have just been an oversight. Yes, and take your brother too and get ready and go again to the man. May El Shaddai give you favor in the man's sight so that he will release to you your older your other brother as well as Benjamin. And for me, if I must lose my children, lose them I will. The men took that gift and they took twice the money with them and Benjamin. Then they prepared, went down to Egypt and stood before Joseph. When Joseph saw Benjamin with them, he said to his household manager, Take the men inside the house, kill the animals, and prepare the meat. These men will dine with me at noon. The man did as Joseph ordered and brought the men in, into Joseph's house. Upon being ushered inside Joseph's house, men became fearful. They said, It's because of the money that was returned in our packs the first time that we have been brought inside so that he can use it as an excuse to attack us take us of slaves and seize our donkeys too. So they approached the manager of Joseph's household and spoke to him at the entrance of the house. Please, my lord, the first time we indeed, we indeed did come down to buy food. But when we got to camp, we opened our packs and there inside our packs was each man's money, the full amount. We've brought it all back with us. Moreover, we have brought down other money to buy food. We have no idea who put our money in our packs. Stop worrying, he replied. Don't be afraid. Your God and the God of your father put treasure in your packs. As for your money, I was the one who received it. Then he brought Simeon out to them. The man brought the men into Joseph's house and gave them water, and they washed their feet, and he provided fodder for their donkeys. Then they got their gift ready for Joseph's arrival at noon, for they had heard that they were going to eat a meal there. When Joseph arrived home, they went into the house and presented him with the gift they had brought with him, then prostrated themselves before him on the ground. He asked them how they were and inquired, Is your father well? The old man of whom you spoke, is he still alive? They answered, Your servant, our father, is well. Yes, he is still alive. As they bowed down in respect, and he looked up and saw Benjamin, his brother, his mother's son, and said, Is this your youngest brother of whom you spoke to me? And added, May God... Be good to you, my son. Then Joseph hurried out because his feelings towards his brothers 
were so strong that he wanted to cry. He went into his bedroom and there he wept. Then he washed his face and came out, but he controlled himself as he gave the order to serve the meal. They served him by himself, the brothers by themselves, and the Egyptians included at the meal by themselves. Egyptians don't eat with Hebrews because that's aberrant to them. So they sat there facing him, the firstborn in the place of honor, the youngest in last place, and the men expressed their amazement to each other. Each was given his serving there in front of him. But Benjamin's portion was five times as large as any of theirs. So they drank and enjoyed themselves with him. Well, a little time passes up in Canaan and the famine doesn't let up and the grain supply purchased and brought back from Egypt is now exhausted. And apparently the nine sons of Jacob, Simeon is still back in Egypt being held hostage, who had earlier sat in this depressed state and did nothing to try to save their clan from starvation are once again completely passive. So Jacob tells them to go back to Egypt and get more grain. Of course, Jacob is reminded by his sons that they can't go without Benjamin. Jacob is still unconvinced to hand over Benjamin to these treacherous sons of his. Then Judah speaks. Judah, humbled by life, humbled by his daughter-in-law Tamar's bold act when Judah failed to respond to her plight appropriately, now offers himself as the surety bond for Benjamin. Now, you know, you might ask just exactly what penalty could Jacob extract from Judah should he fail on his mission to take Benjamin to Egypt and return him safely home. Well, you know, as we discussed a while back, Judah almost certainly saw himself as the likely inheritor of the wealth and authority of the clan of Israel. He apparently knew already that Reuben was no longer going to receive that firstborn blessing because he had defiled his father's bed. Okay. And of course, Jacob's second and third sons were the ones who led the raid of revenge upon Shechem, killing every male and then leading the plundering of the remaining inhabitants, and this would have disqualified them. So with Joseph, formerly Jacob's favorite, now thought to be dead, right? Judah, fourth in line, must have seen himself as that person who would soon be the leader of the tribes of Israel. Now Judah, by agreeing to accept all blame if something were to happen to Benjamin, had a lot to lose. Okay? He too could have been disinherited. All right? Jacob knew that too and must have felt that if it were at all possible for Benjamin to be spared, Judah would do all he could to see that it got done. So here finally was a son that could be trusted. Jacob could trust Judah in this matter. But even more, Jacob was going to trust God. If he was to lose all of his sons, then so be it. He was in God's hands. So taking the money that had mysteriously found its way into their grain bags upon returning from the first trip and an equal, with an equal amount to buy new grain, the brothers, including Benjamin, now journey back down to Egypt. Joseph sees that his brothers return 
have returned, and with them is Benjamin. So he orders a banquet to be prepared and served at noon. And he orders his servants to bring his brothers inside his house for this banquet. But the brothers think it's a trap. Okay? That they're going to be taken as slaves, as they'd arranged to have happen for Joseph, in retribution for the incident with the money found in their packs. Joseph's house manager assures them that's not the case. So Joseph arrives at his home, and the brothers present him with the gifts they had brought with them from Canaan. And Joseph inquires about their, his father's well-being, and they tell him he's fine, and then Joseph spots Benjamin, and he's overwhelmed with emotion. And he must leave them for a few minutes to weep bittersweet tears in private. So now he's composed, and Joseph comes back out, and the meal's served. And now what we see in these verses now is a completely accurate account of the way a meal of this sort would have been served in Egypt. Joseph eats alone. Okay. The brothers eat together as a group, and the Egyptian house servants eat separately from both the brothers and from Joseph. It is well-documented Egyptian custom that the head of the house never eats with the servants. Okay. But why didn't the servants eat with the Israelite brothers? Well, we're told in verse 32 that it was aberrant to Egyptians to eat with Hebrews. Now, this is interesting stuff. Okay, you see, Hebrews, as were many Semite tribes and people groups in this era, shepherds. Okay, the Egyptians saw shepherds as the lowest class of people, and their mere presence was offensive to them. Okay, an Egyptian would never eat with a shepherd. Okay, Egyptians valued cattle, not sheep. Okay. But that's one of the reasons that the Egyptians' highest deity, Isis, was represented by a bull. They were cattle lovers. Okay. But pretty soon, another aspect of this Egyptian tradition was going to come into play. The Israelites would be given the land of Goshen, that fertile area up, up north to live in. A land where they would be away from the main cities, the grand cities of Egyptian society, to grow their sheep and not offend any Egyptian sensibilities by being up there. Now, as the brothers sat down to eat, each carefully seated by a servant in a place reserved specifically for each brother, they were stunned to see that they had been arranged from oldest to youngest in perfect birth order. Now, would that freak you out? I mean, what could this mean? I mean, even more, Benjamin was given a portion of food five times everybody else. Now, scholars have kind of debated what the meaning of this five-fold blessing of food upon Benjamin and was and the general consensus is that in Egypt a prince or a ruler was given five times as much as everyone else is a sign of royalty. Now, of course, this also raises the question: What was Joseph signifying with this? Well, my personal opinion is that Joseph was honoring the brother he would have had the most affinity to, of course, 
the one with which he shared a common mother, and the one who, of the eleven brothers, was completely innocent of any wrongdoing in connection with Joseph being sold into slavery. But we should also not overlook that the very first king of Israel would be a descendant of Benjamin. Royalty. I think that'll do it for the night.